Okay, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll look at the first 11 verses this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is great uh, because it wrestles with the big questions in life that um, really a lot of people are asking. Uh, it explores this world for answers to those questions. Uh, is there anything worthwhile in life? Is there anything fulfilling in life? Is there anything truly significant to be found in this whole wide world under the sun? Uh, Ecclesiastes asks, the, the operative phrase there being under the sun, in this world, in this life, in this material observable realm, without regard really to the spiritual invisible realities of God and heaven, with regard to this world, could we ever be truly satisfied? Um, the various explorations of Ecclesiastes uh, are they're brutally honest, and they really resonate with us in so many ways. Because really, when you get down to it, we realize there's not going to be easy answers to these hard questions, and Ecclesiastes gives no easy answers. But uh, the places where Ecclesiastes explores in the world, these are the places in the world where we look for answers. These are the places in the world where our friends and our family look for answers. These are the things that we pursue, the things that Ecclesiastes explores. They're the things that we pursue imagining that we'll find what we're looking for. These are the things that we devote our lives to, hoping for a a big payoff, a full, final, and forever payoff. And this morning, uh, we'll hear what Ecclesiastes has to say about hedonism. Hedonism basically is the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, Living for things that make us feel good. And this is one of the big ones, especially for affluent people in the first world. And I have to confess, uh, this is one of the big ones for me. I need to believe what Ecclesiastes is saying here. I need to know how Jesus answers the questions that I'm asking of my pleasures. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, maybe this won't just be a sermon for me. <laughs> maybe, maybe some of you uh, are in the same boat I am. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we might not always feel desperate, but we are desperate. We're most desperate for your help. So we pray that you would give us the help that you know we need as we hear your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vapor. Or vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vapor and hurting wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so maybe you've seen shows about uh, cops going undercover um, or spies maybe infiltrating a criminal organization, right, to, to get close to the bad guys, to find out what the bad guys are doing, to find out how to stop them and save the world or save the city or whatever it is. You know, the good guy in this scenario, the cop or the spy or whatever who's doing the infiltrating, he has to play a role. And he has to play it very well because not only is his life at stake if he slips up in his role, but he's got to get in important information back out, back outside for the sake of others. Right? So he, he has to put on the performance of his life. He has to convince the bad guys that he's just as bad as they are. In fact, he has to be so convincing that he scares even the good guys who sent him in there. He has to be so convincing that he makes even himself wonder if he hasn't actually turned bad. And this is what Solomon is doing here in Ecclesiastes. He's going undercover. He's infiltrating the underworld of hedonism in our passage. He's going in deep to explore it all from the inside and then to report back to us so deep that we'll all wonder if he hasn't gone bad himself. He says that it's a controlled experiment, his exploration of hedonism. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you. I'll test you with pleasure. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He says that a couple times. Right? So he's intentional. He's purposeful. He's deliberate. He's looking for something to make life worthwhile. He says in verse 3, uh, so that you might see what's good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life, to see if there's anything of lasting substance to be gained under the sun in this world. Right? And we wonder, can you really keep your wits about you? Well, laying hold on folly and cheering your body with wine and going all out after pleasure? Well, Solomon says so, and he says he's conducting a careful experiment, and he's gone in so deep that we all wonder. After all, he talks here about uh, having many concubines. And in First, uh, First Kings chapter 11, it says he has 700 wives who are princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So maybe he played his part a little too well. He gave himself too completely to the role, to the part that he was playing. And you know what? As tragic as that may be for him, it's helpful to us. It's helpful to us because we know this report is the genuine article. This is the real look at hedonism. None of the scriptures uh, were written by perfect sinless people. None of them at all. But God is revealing his message to us through them <clears throat> nevertheless. And the message here is this. Take it from someone with 
experience, the most experience you could possibly have in this area. The man who's gotten in as deep into the life of pleasure as, as is possible, he says it's empty. There are no answers here. You will not find what you're looking for. You will only lose yourself this way. <clears throat> so let's look at some of the pleasures that he explored. It says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. Um, so he's saying that, I think he's saying this, comedy as a solution to our existential crisis is insane. So they say laughter is the best medicine. You can look this up on the internet. Uh, all the, you know, websites talking about it. You know, it does have some remarkable physiological effects. It releases endorphins. It can help relieve stress. It has an effect similar to antidepressants and, uh, and releases serotonin, right? Laughter has an anti- anti-inflammatory effect on, on uh, and it's good for your heart. And it strengthens social connections. There's all kinds of ways in which laughter, we know scientifically, medically speaking, it's good, right? <clears throat> But so often this is a coping mechanism for living in a broken world. Which is something that uh, deep down we know we can't do. We can't live in a world like this. I laugh when I'm nervous. I laugh when I'm feeling vulnerable. I laugh to deflect some pretty difficult feelings that I can't stand to face. I laugh to try to make a, a situation or a conversation a bit more comfortable. I laugh because I don't have the resources to face life as it is, to face reality. So what's laughter going to do about that? I can't face reality and laughter's going to fix that, right? So often laughter is just an illusion of feeling good. It's papered over all the bad. People look to things like laughter and comedy when they're depressed or when they're ashamed or when they're lonely. You know, the class clown is probably the most depressed person in, in the room, right? The comedians are killing themselves. They say, look how miserable we are. Let's just joke and laugh about it. It might seem to work for a while until it doesn't anymore. We do it because it feels good. It's replacing pain with pleasure, at least temporarily. But Ecclesiastes helps us to see the cold truth about it. Laughter as a coping mechanism for life in this world is literally insanity. It says in verse 3, I searched uh, searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So here, another pleasure he's exploring. Maybe he's talking about the sophisticated or refined pleasures. You know, good wine. Uh, Maybe he's just talking about being drunk. I mean, he says in the same verse... He's looking to lay hold of folly. Either way, uh, he's using alcohol to make himself feel better, whether he's the sophisticated kind or the drunkard kind. He's using alcohol to make himself feel better. He's probably doing it with more awareness than addicts usually have, uh, but he's still looking for happiness at the bottom of that bottle. Uh, Joe Pope used to sponsor people who were uh, recovering from addiction in Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> and he says that uh, even the people whose, whose use of alcohol has ruined their lives, and they, they really know it, they need regular reminding that alcohol can't fix their lives. Can't fix their lives. So he would say, uh, 
I love this. You say, if you haven't figured out yet that alcohol can't fix your life, we can go down to the bar and I'll buy you another drink and you can run your experiment and see if maybe the next one will fix things. The problem with most of us and uh, most of our use of alcohol or abuse of alcohol is that we're not so thoughtful about what it is that we're doing. Not so thoughtful as Solomon here is in Ecclesiastes. It's just instinctive. You try to shut out the pain with chemical pleasure. Ecclesiastes says there are no answers to our questions. There are no solutions to our problems at the bottom of that bottle. You're not going to find them there. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. That sounds just, just fine. Just fine. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that people are made for, right? When God created us, he had planted a garden and he put us in the midst of it to keep it, to tend it. The idea being that we would do great works and turn the whole world into a flourishing garden. But life in this world was always meant to be life with God. And God is conspicuously absent from the life that's being described here. So Solomon's pursuit of pleasure moved him to recreate, as a, a commentator says, Derek Kidner says, to recreate a secular garden of Eden A secular one, not a garden where relationship with God is central, just a big, beautiful place with palaces and parks and pools. So I know I've thought if we could just get a little bit more land, a place in the country, a place with a view on a hill, a place to plant a nice vineyard, just a small one, just a modest vineyard, where I could sit on my porch with my cup of coffee every morning, then I'd be happy. Then I can imagine... All the difficulty of life melting away. And we're supposed to work the land, right? That's, that's what we're made for. Or maybe with Solomon, it wasn't so much work as it was more like what we consider hobbies. Maybe it was more like hobbies. I mean, he certainly didn't need to work, didn't need to create all the palaces and the parks and the pools. He just he had all the resources, he had all the tools. And so he had all the fun hobbies. You know, these are the things that are supposed to make life worthwhile, hobbies. Not your work, something outside of work and family and the regular responsibilities of those things. Hobbies, it's supposed to make life worthwhile. These are the things that everyone needs in order to keep their sanity, a little craft, to escape the stresses of life. You don't know how many books I've read, how many conversations I've had with other pastors where I've been told that one of the things that makes for a a well-balanced life helps with stress is a good hobby every pastor needs a hobby every pastor needs a creative outlet otherwise we'd go crazy i guess and i've done that i've got a lot of interests tried a lot of things i've tried the creative outlets i've tried photography and music and woodworking and painting i've tried more leisurely pursuits motorcycling and traveling and uh, wine tasting People who look to fill up their lives with things like these, with all the comforts and the pleasures and the pursuits that wealth affords, they all testify to an emptiness, an ennui, right? This existential boredom, this despair. So Ravi Zacharias said, despair doesn't lie in being 
weary of suffering, but in being weary of pleasure. When the pleasure button is repeatedly depressed and can no longer deliver or sustain, the emptiness that results is terrifying. A little more land, a bigger garden, a vineyard, a, a new hobby. Any relief or pleasure or fullness that we seek from these things is going to wane. It always does. And we'll always be left wanting more, just like the addict. How much more stuff do you need to get before you know? That more stuff isn't the answer that you're looking for. More stuff won't fix what's broken. More stuff won't fill what's empty. Solomon tried everything. He had it all. Uh, so again, Derek Kidner, he says, he creates a little world within a world, multiform, harmonious, exquisite, a secular garden of Eden, full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights, with no forbidden fruits or none that he regards as such. He's had the sense to avoid the rich man's boredom by strenuous activity, enjoyed and valued for its own sake. So he tried good things, he tried bad things. He got slaves, he got livestock, he got money. There was no digital music library to get, that's okay. He had a whole choir of people on retainer to sing for him whenever and wherever he liked. The wine and the women and the song were freely flowing. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for my toil. He, got, he did what he wanted, he got what he wanted, and it felt good. Nothing in this world was out of reach for him. It was never enough. Never going to be enough. It says in verse 11, I considered, I faced all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, vapor, hurting wind, striving, striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And uh, a lot of people in this world say, yeah, nod in agreement. That's right. But we still envy Solomon, his palaces and his parks and his pools. We still accumulate wealth and the best things money can buy. We still look to escape or cope with stress through our hobbies. We still bend our lives around recreation, living for pleasure. We still look for that next purchase, that next business deal, that next passionate night to fulfill us. Is there anything in this world that can satisfy you finally and fully and forever? No, we know that. Everybody knows that. Jim Carrey, um, the actor, the comedian, said, I used to think that the parts I played or the, the fame would define me and someday complete me. But I wish everybody fame and fortune so that they can cross it off a list and move on to something else. But we've crossed everything off the list. And we don't know what's left after that. That's the problem. So I got this illustration from Phil uh, Riken. His commentary uh, is a really good one on Ecclesiastes. He's talking about Tom Brady, uh, who is the NFL quarterback. Um, pretty much everybody thinks he's the best one who's ever lived. And uh, Tom Brady was interviewed several years ago in 60 Minutes after winning his third 
Super Bowl, and he's got five now, five now, and he's going to, t- to his tenth. He's got six already. Okay, yeah. So he's playing again this this next weekend uh, for the Super Bowl. Uh, the champion teams uh, they get these fancy rings when they win the Super Bowl, and he was asking, uh, or he was being asked, which was his favorite ring out of the three that he had, he had only the, only the three at that time. <clears throat> uh, which was his favorite ring, and he said the next one. Ooh, sounds really inspiring. Um, Tom Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I, I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the interview interviewer asks, so what's the answer? Tom Brady, existential crisis, what else is there for me? What is the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And that's been the problem all along. That we know we're empty. And we know something is missing. And we know we're never going to find it in this world. But we don't know what it is. And we don't know what will satisfy us. And that's what makes everything so dreadful that we've got to cram whatever we can get into our hearts. Ecclesiastes is, is the authoritative word on the matter that living to get comfort, living to get pleasure and fulfillment, living to feel good uh, because of the things that in this world, in this world, this world has to offer, it's never going to work. So C.S. Lewis said, uh, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. We were made to enjoy God. We were made to find our ultimate comfort and pleasure and fulfillment in him. We're finite creatures. We have this infinitely desperate need and, and the infinite God is the only one who can satisfy us finally and fully and forever. We're creatures in time, and only the constant presence of the eternal God can fill us. So Phil Reichen said, Satisfaction only comes in God himself so that our dissatisfaction may teach us to turn to him. The dissatisfaction we find in looking for pleasures that are going to finally and and fully and forever fill us up in this world, you're going to be dissatisfied, but that can teach you to turn to God. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is a blessing. It's a severe mercy. Look, the answer to our struggle is not to just do like the Buddhists. Hey, detach yourself from everything so that nothing hurts you anymore. Uh, The answer isn't to forsake all earthly enjoyments. The answer is to trace the inevitable disappointment back to its roots and to remember the God who gave us all things to be enjoyed with him rather than apart from him. So, 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's made holy by bringing it into your relationship with God. Right? Every time you enjoy something under the sun, 
It's a good thing that God has created and given to you. You trace that thing back to where it came from, beyond the sun, to the one who gave it. If you don't do that, if you don't trace back the things that God has given you, trace them back to him, whether in your satisfaction and your thanksgiving and your enjoyment of those things or your dissatisfaction, they've, they've let you down again, trace it back to you. If you don't do that, you will never find who it is you're, you're truly looking for. It's not a what that you're looking for. It's a who. Let your relationship with God in Christ define your experience of reality in this world. Reject the pleasures that God has forbidden. Receive the pleasures that God has given. Receive them with thanksgiving to him and enjoyment. But don't live for them. Don't live for them. Because it isn't these earthly pleasures that satisfy. It's God. So we're not to be living in order to get some fulfillment that we don't have. To find it somewhere in the world. We're to live from a fullness that we've already been given. Because ultimately, God has already given himself to us. He's a gracious gift of relationship with himself, the infinite and eternal blessing of knowing him. Our past is defined by God giving himself to us in his son, the Lord Jesus, come down to earth to be God with us. That's who he is. Our present is defined by God giving himself to us in his spirit. Our future is defined by God giving himself to us finally and fully and forever in ways that we could barely even begin to conceive. Right? So Psalm 16 says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Nowhere else. So this is why Jesus says in Matthew, um, which was our gospel reading that Joe read, uh, Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Basically just talking about the transience of all the earthly pleasures we could have. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For there, your tr- uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <clears throat> so look, we've heard Jesus say that. We know Jesus says that our treasures on earth, they're not going to satisfy. We believe that. We know that we need to have our treasures in heaven in our relationship with God. But even we Christians, we still look for satisfaction apart from God. We still sin, we still idolize creation and worship creation. Sometimes it seems like God is is our AA sponsor. Letting us have the next drink to show us, again, that's not going to work. But he won't leave us this way forever. When he sent Jesus, he revealed his intention to us. He means to save us from ourselves, from our misplaced desires. He means to save us for a relationship with himself. He means to give himself to us, to satisfy us with himself forever. We can believe that Jesus has lived the human life that we should have lived, but we haven't. That among all human beings who ever lived, he was the only one who was truly satisfied with God alone, that he received everything that he had 
from God with thanksgiving, and he sanctified it by prayer, that Jesus was filled with all the fullness of God, and that he, he was filled with all the fullness of God on our behalf. And this life with God that he has is the life that is in store for us in Christ. To be filled with all the fullness of God, even as Jesus is. And that is happening more and more for you as you abide in Jesus. As you let your dissatisfaction with earthly things move you to trace everything back to God. As you consider how he, he is satisfying you in ways that earthly things never could. And as you thank him and enjoy his gifts in this life with him. It doesn't matter whether you're as wealthy as Solomon or dirt poor, have nothing to enjoy in this life. If your pleasure is found in God, then you have treasures in heaven that you'll never lose, that you will enjoy finally, fully, and forever when you see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we often feel trapped in the pursuit of earthly pleasures, addicted to the pursuit of earthly pleasures. We know nothing in this world can satisfy us apart from you, yet we still live as if it were possible. We pray that you would grant us the mercy of disappointment and dissatisfaction and meet us in those places of dissatisfaction. You've already given yourself to us. We pray that you'd make us to know it, to know you. To thank you, to experience life for what it is, it's life with you. Fill us up with all your fullness and help us to be the kind of people who show other hungry people where they can be filled up with all your fullness in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.